Yeah, so it was interesting because, you know, you, you, you think, oh, I'm too tired to put time into preparing a discussion point and, you know, I'm going to have a late night on Saturday night and, and I did and all that kind of thing. But I just felt God saying, you need to talk about what it means to be seated with Christ. And uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that, you know, these fine words can just trip off our tongue. I've, I've said it here so many times before already, we're seated in heavenly places with him. But, you know, sometimes we have to sit quietly and actually meditate. And think, and all meditation is, is thinking in a focused way on something that God is saying to us. And so really what I want to do is to focus in a concentrated way or to concentrate whatever it was I said there. You know what I mean, the words aren't coming out to say ought. But to just set aside a little time to meditate on what it means to be seated with Christ. And I have a few few scriptures that I, I want to read. Um, the passages are a little bit long, a little bit longer than we often have during our discussion point. But I really think this is important and I, I feel that all of us need to be reminded from time to time what it is to actually be seated in heavenly places with, with Christ. So I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, right through until uh, chapter 2 verse 9. And really, this, this is focused on a prayer that Paul had for his brothers and sisters in the city of Ephesus. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who feels all in all. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, 
and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I think that this is a particularly important passage of Scripture. There's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. And um, I know that I've, I've mentioned before this, this notion that the, the power that works in us today is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. The death-defying power that raised Christ from the dead is actually alive in us and working in and through us today. But I don't want to focus on that aspect of the, the prayer that, that Paul prayed. But I want to talk about this idea that Jesus sits at the right hand of God and that we sit actually at the right hand of Jesus. So if God's here, and this is his right hand, then Jesus is here, and if we're actually seated with him, with Christ in heavenly places, we must be seated at the right hand of Christ. Okay, because if we were seated anywhere else, we wouldn't be seated with Christ. There's a couple of things that I want to tease out of this. The first you've heard from me before, the idea that the right hand in, in Hebrew thinking is actually the hand of honour and favour. And when Jesus actually assured the disciples and when Paul recorded this in his letter to the Christians of Ephesus, he was emphasising the fact, one, that Jesus Christ was exalted to the same level, or the same position, if you like, as God himself, which is what you would expect. Because Jesus is part of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, three in one. Now, when Jesus said this, of course, and when Paul uh, relates this in that uh, letter that he wrote, to the Ephesians, the reflection is on Jesus, the man who died, who rose again and then ascended into heaven. And when Jesus was on earth, although he was fully God, he actually lived fully as a human being. He had to. He's the only sinless human being who ever walked on the earth. So the idea of being seated at the right hand of God is that Jesus was exalted to the same level as God but in addition to that to be at the right hand that's the hand of favour. So it's the hand of honour and the hand of favour. And where are we? We are seated with Christ Jesus. So we're actually at the same time, we're siblings of Jesus Christ. That's what the word teaches us. We're actually brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. And where Jesus himself was entitled to an inheritance as son of the Father, because we are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, so too are we entitled to an inheritance. And that inheritance includes good health and financial prosperity. So, God's desire is that we would actually prosper in all areas of our life. Everything we touch, 
could actually turn to blessing. You thought I was going to say turn to gold, didn't you? <laughs> but there's nothing more precious than gold unless it is the blessing of God and God blesses us in many, many different ways. So the fact that we're actually seated at the right hand of Jesus suggests that as far as God is concerned, our position is the same position as Jesus. Now this doesn't make us God. We're made in his image and likeness. We're like God. It doesn't make us God. But it means that God honours us and God loves us as he loves his own son, Jesus Christ. And see, it doesn't make any difference what anyone might tell you what any test you do might conclude, what you yourself might think about yourself, the truth is God has put you in a position and he has made you a person in his own image. And I've often said before, I think we should read the epistles to try and get a God's eye view. Don't read it through how you perceive yourself Read those epistles through how God actually perceives you, how God sees each of you. And he actually sees us as being seated with Jesus at his right hand. I think that is an absolutely amazing statement. It's an amazing statement that as far as God is concerned, you know, our past actually means nothing. It was his grace that he conferred on us that um, actually brought about our salvation. I mean, that, that is an absolutely incredible thought, isn't it? That it's the grace of God that, that saved us. And I'll come to that. Um, oh, I might. We'll see how we go. But I, I want to talk a little bit about the idea that this position we hold is seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. I think there are two aspects of being seated. The first is something that Ainsley actually um, led us in discussion on, I think it was the week before Easter, wasn't it? Good Friday. That's right, it was two days before Easter. And um, don't worry about that reference there. That, I don't know where that came from. I, I had it written on a piece of paper for some reason and I put it in there. But if you read Matthew 5, 7, it doesn't actually say it is, it is finished. It's actually um, John nineteen twenty eight. John nineteen twenty eight. So I, I, I was sitting there earlier this morning. I'm thinking, where did that come from? What was I going to use that scripture for? I've got no idea. But Jesus came to abolish the Lord. Is that what it says in Matthew 5? I, I do actually want to... Um, is that what it says? Yeah, sorry. Oh, well, maybe that's why I wanted to use it, because I, I want to talk about... I do want to talk about the law. But um, Ainsley talked about the idea that when, when Jesus was on the cross, the, the last thing he said, before the Bible says he gave up the ghost or, or died, he said it is finished, which is just one word in Greek, to tell us die just one word and um, I, I'm not going to go through what it means in the Greek and all that sort of thing but um, and Ainsley did a brilliant job of that when she um, led us in that discussion a little while ago but 
it's worth just thinking for a little bit about what, what was it that he finished? What was it that he finished? He actually finished the work that God had given him, which was to fulfil the law and the prophets. I must have been having a senior's moment, eh, when I couldn't figure out why I had that passage there. Um, Jesus is, um, I think he might have been talking to a whole lot of people at the time. And um, he concludes his discussion by saying, "Um, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfil. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfil. This is an absolutely amazing statement. Go through the law in the Old Testament. There's a lot of it there. There's a lot of it there. And I believe that by the time that that Jesus came, uh, the Pharisees had added to it. What they were trying to do was to work out what it all meant in terms of the daily lives of people. I believe they had something like 640 laws by the time that Jesus walked on the earth. Not as bad as Australia today, but it was, was pretty tough. It was pretty tough. And remember when um, Jesus was talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, we spoke about that a few weeks ago, he actually went through the whole of the what we now call the Old Testament and pointed out to the disciples how uh, the prophets had pointed to him actually coming to earth. So Jesus makes this statement of himself, I have fulfilled the law and the prophets. So as far as God is concerned, because he died, the death he did, he died on our behalf, as far as God is concerned, he sees us as having fulfilled the law and the prophets. Because Jesus was a a substitution for us. We we should die because of our sins. The, The... um, the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. That is, eternal. We're not just talking about dying and then being resurrected. But because Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets on our behalf, we don't face that eternal damnation. And you see, that's why Jesus is seated. He's finished his job. Now, it's a metaphor, it's a word picture, of course. Jesus is still doing stuff, there's no doubt about that, because he also intercedes for us. So, that's why when we pray, we say, in the name of Jesus, because we're taught that Jesus intercedes for us because of his position at the right hand of of God. So, he's he's still busy, but the idea of being seated is that you finished your work. So, you know, Andrew comes home after being hard at work. Sit down, watch a bit of telly, have a lemonade. Maybe he sits outside, has a smoke or something. It helps you relax, right? I've finished, I've finished the day's work. Well, Jesus, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father now because he's finished. He's finished. You know, when I got home last night, I sat down because <laughs> I had sore feet and legs. 
<laughs> we finished. We finished. So that's one aspect of being seated with Christ. The other one I would suggest is that we are in unity with Him. See, look at you, look at you guys now, the way you're, way you're seated. There's a, a unity among us because we come together to share, to experience the presence of God, the love of God, to join together in worship. We're all hearing the same word. Well, I hope we're all hearing the same word. So there's a kind of unity uh, among us. But this notion that Jesus finished his work by fulfilling all of the law and the prophet and then he's seated at the right hand and that we are with him implies that there is unity. And I want to look into uh, John 17... Uh, 20 to 26 and I'll read it out and um, I I often read this passage of scripture myself because I I just think it's one of the keys to understanding what life in Christ is all about so John 17 verse 23 to 26 this is Jesus praying he's praying specifically for the disciples but he also says I'm praying not only for them, but all of those who come after them, and that includes us. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Right there is the key to evangelism, isn't it? You know? If we are in unity with him and with one another, that is going to be a sign to the world that all this stuff about Jesus is actually true. And the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may be be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Now it's a bit complicated, it's a pretty long sentence but it's not too hard to get the picture, is it? That Jesus is one with the Father and certainly that is true now because he's seated at the right hand of the Father. But we also are one with him because we're seated with Christ Jesus in heavenly places and through that prayer we're actually one with one another. And we might have very different backgrounds, we might have very different aspirations, our daily experiences might be very, very different but because of that prayer that Jesus prayed, when we accept him as our Lord and Saviour, we're actually coming to unity. And again, even if we don't 
sense that that's the case, it's the truth. It is the truth. And as we meditate on the Word of God, we have a revelation of the truth. And to know that we're in unity with Him and we're in unity with one another, that is the source of our identity. See, we Christians, we don't have an identity crisis because our identity is not actually determined by anything that is, if you like, horizontal. Our identity is actually determined vertically because Christ is in unity with God, we're in unity with Christ, and because every one of us is in unity with God through Christ, we're actually in unity with one another. And that's just a plain fact, no matter how we feel. So to be seated with Christ is one, to accept that the work is finished. The work is finished. And our salvation comes through grace. It comes through grace. And because of the grace of God, we enter into that beautiful unity. And our identity is fully defined by our relationship with Christ, actually our relationship with God through Christ. And all of that horizontal stuff that the world uses as a basis for identity like their job, their money, the size of their house, whether or not their neighbours like them, you know, how famous they are, how many friends they have on Facebook, all of those things, for us they're actually the outworking of who we are in Christ. Who are we? We're people who are seated with him in heavenly places. We are partakers of the finished work of Jesus who fulfilled the law in its entirety and who fulfilled the prophets. And we enter in to that status with him simply through faith. The final point that I want to make is that grace is not an excuse for anything. Grace is not an excuse for anything. You've obviously heard many times that grace is the unmerited favour of God. Yes, it's that, but it's also power. Uh, most most um, um, discussions on, on what the word grace means, they, they will go to some length to explain that, that it's more than favour. It's also a power. I believe that grace, in addition to being the favour of God is his empowerment to enable us to be whom we really are in Christ. That is people in unity, people who partake of the finished work of Jesus Christ. When he took bread and he took the wine, he said, take, eat, drink of this cup in remembrance of me. So Jeanette, if you'd like to get the communion, We'll do um, communion just in remembrance of what we have been thinking on this morning, in remembrance of the fact that from the cross Jesus said, it is finished. What did he finish? He finished the work God gave him, which was to fulfil the law and the prophets on our behalf so that we can access the throne of God through his grace and not through our own works. So let's 